Welcome to Look See, the podcast for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. Contemporary art is often defined as the art of the now, and I'm not sure that I have encountered an artist more in this very moment than Martine Sims. She defines herself as a conceptual entrepreneur, not an artist. In her work, she adapts any discipline, any distribution methods, any formal strategies or models that respond to the shifting boundaries of culture and business. Regardless of the method or lens she's using at the moment, in her work she investigates how blackness is circulated as an image. One of her main interests has been the entertainment industry, and especially film. Black references are at the core of the movies. Gestures, movement, language, style, and fashion all essentially shape what we see on the screen, and Sims has pushed us to see this more clearly. With the new installation on view currently at the Institute for Contemporary Art at VCU, Martine Sims is moving into examining technology, specifically artificial intelligence and social media. In this space, unlike entertainment, there is very little, if any, reference to blackness. The third release of what Sims refers to as a research project, Shame Space, asks what blackness and black femininity might look like in this space. I spoke with Amber Aceva, assistant curator at the ICA, about Martine Sims and this paradigm-shifting installation that happily raises many more questions than it answers. I am here at the Institute for Contemporary Art at VCU with Amber Seva, who is the assistant curator here at the ICA. And we are going to talk a little bit today about a new installation. Martine Sims is the artist. And Amber, when I saw this installation, there are just so many things about it that just completely blew my mind. I mean, it's just so 21st century, mm-hmm. so many new ideas about about just what is art and how can you explore these questions as an artist. So there's so much to talk about, but I'd love it if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction to Martine Sims as an artist. I know you've been following her work for a long time, so give us a little bit of an introduction to Martine Sims. Happy to. Martine Sims is a fairly young artist with uh, quite a bit of success that I, yes, you're correct, have been following for a really long time. One of the things that first drew me to Martine Sims' work was the way that she was then at the time defining herself as a conceptual entrepreneur and not an artist. And what this meant was basically she was adopting any discipline, any distribution methods, any formal strategies or models in her work that were responding to the shifting boundaries of culture and business. So she had this way about her that one, you know, she would be by practice a graphic designer, but she also ran a publishing house. And then she was also making films. And then she was also making installation work. And this way of like constantly keeping the same investigation in her work, but constantly re-adapting herself to the conditions of the field and the conditions of the world was something that was just most fascinating to me about Martine. Her practice, despite 
her moving around as far as mediums and modes of distribution has always been and continues to be dedicated to how blackness is circulated as an image. So how it's circulated as a vernacular image through entertainment industry, in which black references are the core of entertainment industry, if not all of it, from gestures, uh, movements, and language style, and fashion, and things like this. And she's always really been interested in how that circulates, how it either restricts or informs the gestures of black people, or, you know, people who appropriate or emulate the culture. That has been the combination of both this idea of blackness as a double consciousness, as something that you are watching and then modeling yourself after and performing yourself as constructed by society and her ability to constantly redefine her practice and respond to contemporary conditions are what drew me to Martine. There are a couple of things that you said there that I'd like to follow up on a little bit. One is this idea of self as performance. Mm -hmm. And lots of artists explore this idea. And I think this idea is even something that is kind of entering the the broader public consciousness as an Mm -hmm. idea that Mm -hmm. we are all performing who Mm -hmm. we are to an extent. But in my exploration of Martine's work, she really goes deeper there than a lot of other conversations that I've come across. So Mm -hmm. can you talk about that idea a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for Martine, I think that maybe one can say that the way that she goes deeper or or takes it a step further is that Martine, like many people who are artists and people who are interested in performativity and how that relates to subjectivity, it's always trapped or defined by identity politics as it was constructed in the 80s and 90s and how it continues to be the way that we talk through our experiences in the world based on our race, our gender, our political affiliations, our socioeconomic class or whatever it is. And for Martine, she's really interested in saying and thinking about if enlightenment brought us subjectivity as a business, you know, a way of saying this is a moment where you clean yourself up, you make yourself presentable, you have a style and you have a a brand to that style, this moment in enlightenment thinking. How far have we gotten in this idea of constructing the self as a perfect image? Where, what are we doing in response to that? And so Martine, yes, she's interested and she's thinking about blackness and black femininity because that's what she's come, she is. She moves back and looks at the larger structures, how things are being disseminated. And she doesn't get trapped in this idea that blackness is the only way to see things or to explore things through. She she thinks about herself and her practice through very complex lenses, which allow her to think about systems as a system rather than in a political ideology. You know, so it's, I think it's very easy for artists to get trapped in the kind of feminism conversation and, and then it becomes about their, themselves and their experience of that. And Martine is just, I guess, you know, more meta <laughs> about it, you know, like thinking about like, oh, well, what brought us feminism in the first place? Like, is subjectivity even a thing nowadays with the internet? Like when we're all just modeling ourselves after other people or getting validation through the images we see, we need to redefinition. And I think she's always at the forefront of trying to redefine through the structures that we are dependent on. And I think that that's the way that she breaks past herself or past in the kind of deeply subjective way of thinking through identity. I feel like in her, in her work up until this point, I mean, she's None of her previous work is the same. Every single project is a different project. Mm-hmm. It's exploring different things. Her project that, for example, that I probably got the most 
attention for her because it was at the Museum of Modern Art oh, in New yeah. York. A lot of what she was trying to convey or trying to communicate in that project was that there is no such thing as a true perspective. Mm -hmm. Or she also had an interactive aspect of that show. But it seems like even then, she's still struggling to like break free of that idea, mm -hmm. which wasn't enough mm -hmm. to communicate mm -hmm. or to challenge or to ask the questions that she's asking. This installation is maybe the first time I've ever seen a truly 21st century work of art because... You can say that to every work she's ever made at the time. Like, yeah. that's how much she, she is really taking into the systems that are we're responding to at that moment. She's just always at the forefront of that. So She's just constantly questioning and pushing herself, and you can sense even in her, in, in that moment, that this is the only tool that I have to use for this right now, but this is not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great way, I think, to, to move into talking a little bit about what this piece is that's mm -hmm. here at the ICA. So the title of the piece is... Shame Space. And it is truly interactive mm -hmm. and immersive. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about how she has accomplished that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll back up a tiny bit just to respond to something that you said about MoMA to say that one of the ways that we've touched upon now about Martine's constantly reshifting her ideas around the art she produces based on how it is that we function in the world, right? And in her MoMA show, which was called Incense, Sweater, and Ice, there was an app that you had to download. Yeah, and the app became the lens for which you looked at these black movie posters like Foxy Brown and then you would can, can communicate with them through text. One of the things that's very brilliant about that is that Martine is like, okay, we don't let go of our phones ever. It doesn't matter what kind of installation we're in. So let's might as well respond to people's need to have this device in their hand and, and interact with them. But pervade this, the, the device so that it only is doing what the work function to the work. So it's still talking to the psychological need that we have to have our phones in our hand while we're looking at any or doing anything. But you can't necessarily text a friend while you're texting the bot or looking through this the phone as a viewfinder to see these posters. So I just think that's brilliant. She's like, you're going to have your phones out. I'm going to take them over and they're going to be part of the work. And so, you know, that project and then this project here, Shame Space, are really one of the beginning stages where Martine started to turn her attention to telecommunication technologies, and that means essentially artificial intelligence, um, which we use all the time through maps and through Siri and Alexa, texting, which we use every day, uh, and applications, which we use every day, like Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is. And one of the really interesting things that happened in my mind when she turned her attention to technology away from the entertainment industries, right, is that she's looking at a field that is dry of black referent. Like there are very little to none, no black coders, you know, reason why Alexa and Siri, like although they're genderless, they sound like white women, you know, like... <laughs> You know, um, and that's because the programmers are all, you know, it's coming from that subjective place. And so for her to turn her attention to a field where she has no referent to go to and her whole work is about refereeing gestures and vernaculars, she has this wide open field to make her own kind of postures or her own ideas of what maybe young female blackness looks like on technology because technology is not doing that. And so for Shame Space, this is the third project in a three-part iterative 
release of this AI that she's looking at. The first one was in London at Sadie Cole's gallery called Grand Calm, uh, which is the name of a yogi tea. And the second one was at Bridget Donahue called Big Surprise. And the third one here at ICA called Shame Space. And I only had the privilege to see the New York one and not the London one, but seen images of all of them. And one of the things that she's done in these three shows, these two release, three releases of a research project, is that she's moved from extreme artifice to the back end. And what I mean by that is that at Sadie Cole's, there was a large LED screen, you know, what you can see at maybe Times Square, in which there was a physical avatar of Martine. So we're kind of, you know, um, AI bot of Martine's face that was scanned that spoke to you, that spoke to you directly and it was through visuals and not necessarily text like this. At Bridget Donahue in New York, Martine's image as a chatbot disappeared. And that chatbot then was incorporated into film and became the basis for running the film. And at the very back of the gallery at Bridget Donahue, there was almost like a sliver and an orange chain link plastic. And you could see trash and the computers that ran the code. And in this iteration, that back space, that mechanism space, the shame space is fully realized. So if, she, if we think about it that way, that's what I meant is that she went from extreme artifice in one, in one space where there's just images of the bot to the bot receiving to the film to the recession being the interior of this piece. So shame space, I guess I'll start with the name. Shame space, when you walk into the gallery, you look at this kind of steel frame that is the beginning process of a wall construction that's unfinished, that has four monitors on this frame and acrylic panels with cutouts, with word, cut, phrases that are cut out of it. And then in the center, there is a kind of scrappy plastic table that you might see at a barbecue with two gaming computers that are running the code and then miscellaneous trash in the space. You know, Martine was really interested in this idea of, okay, if I have this vacuum to fill for postures about subjectivity around digital platforms, what is it that I want to represent in this? And one thing that was really interesting for her is that her and our entire relationship to social media and representations of people or subjects as profiles, right, is that we are used to constantly looking at idealized images of people, like people on vacation, people happy, people healthy, people in like, you know, acquiring success and in being in love or whatever it is, you know. And so she was thinking about what does this do to us as a culture when we're constantly, first thing we do when we wake up or all day long, looking at idealized versions of other people, right? You start to compare yourself to them, one, that starts to engender shame and a feeling of uh, not being good enough or not performing well enough. And she was really interested in that idea. You know, this is an um, idea that's highly psychological. You know, it's like Jung talked about this, the shadow self, you know, like those ugly parts of ourselves, the neuroses, the self-confidence issues, uh, the vulnerabilities that we've just been trained to eradicate from our public lives. And so she was thinking about if this engagement to images and people digitally just brings other people that engage with these images such shame, what does that mean for us as, as a culture? And what does that mean for us as people that are creating ourselves through these like deeply troubling psychological dependencies on image and 
success. So shame space takes its name from that. And she's, you know, again, if she's answering the question, what to posture in this, it's she wants to, uh, in this vacuum of technology, is that she wants to posture a subjectivity that's real, one that actually puts to the forefront all of these vulnerabilities, all of these psychological tribulations that we have every day, rather than re-performing this idea of success. In this space, the reason why the structure, the aluminum structure is unfinished, my hands are in quotes, then there's detritus and you can see the computer codes instead of hiding them like most museums do. She's presenting an exhibition as an unidealized space, a piece, which is, you know, interesting. One of the things that I talk about in the essay I wrote is this amazing idea from Fred Moten, who's dear to me, dear to Martine and a lot of young practitioners. He's a scholar and a poet who says, that talks about colonialism and enlightenment is around this business of eradicating the unidealized and the fuzz and the messiness. And the institution and the museum is a byproduct of these kind of structures, these cultural structures. And so we've become, as curators and institutions, in the business of caring for things, again, my hands are in quote, and presenting them in their most perfect way, you know, perfect way, right? And we have become unable to support projects that are advocating for this kind of anti-colonialist, revolutionized mess of uh, insulation. Someone sat on one of the trash bags in the space because they thought it was a bean bag. And, you know, the preparator, a preparator who's amazing and super good at his job was just like, what do we do? We don't have the same color trash bag. I'm like, it's trash. It doesn't, any trash bag will do. You know, it's like this preciousness that we have with installations and objects in these kinds of institutions is being challenged by Martine in her desire to keep an unfinished space. Another thing that's really important to the work and really important to this, you know, I don't want to call it a pivot, but maybe like a sidestep in her practice towards a good direction is that if you look up Martine, or if you've ever experienced Martine's work, the color purple is the thing. Yeah, it's central to everything she does because while she's invested in exploring ideas of black vernacular, she wants people, when they're describing her work, to say the color purple, like from Alice Walker, you know? And that's part of the performance or the, the reading of the work. And in this space, when she presented the idea of doing this safety orange, hunting orange, or, you know, this orange that's, that's used to designate safety, she's really making this tension between this idea of shame and vulnerability and threat to safe spaces and safety. And so that's a big move in her practice to move away from the color purple and to go to technology where there's no reference to the, um, the kinds of interests that she's she's been engaging with for a really long time. And then thinking about the kind of subjective threats that those technologies place on us as individuals and needing to signify that through color. So one of the things that you mentioned is this idea of the bot. So a chat bot is the thing that talks to us when we think we're actually talking to a person. Yeah. And she has been kind of playing with that idea for a while. And some of it been, you know, in the past, she's had sort of text bubbles pop up on the screen that that she has programmed and placed there, you know, and so again, this is just, she's just constantly involving with this idea. And you, you gave a great description of how she's, how that's changed through this particular research project. And so can you tell us a little bit about first, how the chatbot in this mm -hmm. installation is different than those that yeah. we normally experience and then how we encounter it? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think 
connects all chatbots, uh, most chatbots that we engage with on a day-to-day -day basis. So Alexa and Siri and I forget all their names, but you know, all of those gals, that they're meant to be their service entities, right? They're there as perceptionists almost, right? To help you either help our brain <laughs> fill in a, a gap of knowledge that we don't know through asking it questions or uh, telling us how to drive somewhere. It's a very much a prosthetic of the mind in this way, but they do so in this very agreeable, in this very neutral, safe way. You know, that wasn't always the case. Chatbots are very much a product of their programmers. So depending on who programmed the chatbot and the language that they program the chatbot to engage in, which comes from a human, the chatbot will reflect that person. And we saw this what was it, in 2016, Microsoft released Tay on Twitter. And Tay, this was before a software called Blacklist came out. Tay was kind of programmed to take on or absorb the language of her users, so anyone who was chatting with her on Twitter. And I think within, uh, I don't, don't quote me on the time, but within about 10 hours, Tay turned into a racist, misogynist psycho because the trolls or the people that were, t that were chatting with her on this platform, she was regurgitating that language and code. And so designers decided like, whoa, 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 we need to make a lexicon dictionary that chatbox can't go to those regions. So like, like chatbox, I don't think can even say Palestine. It's very strange words that they can't say. They obviously cannot say derogatory things or misogynist things. And it's this giant index of words that they can't use. You know, you know, we've all experienced this when we're maybe messing with it with with Siri. You know, mm -hmm. she never responds with more vul vulgarity because she's programmed to do this. And so for Martine, the her chatbot, her name is Teeny, takes on the language of an artist and um, takes on the language of an artist's like deep psychological questions and ideas. You know, they come from um, the artist, you know, journaling and making scripts of her subconscious. And the questions range from playful fun things like where, where are we going to party tonight or to very heavy things like why do I have body dysmorphia and will I ever cultivate joy or will I ever have good sex again you know these things that bots don't say so really a lot of questions about socializing and about you know pursuing love interest that makes it feel like you know of course you know it makes it feel at first like you're talking to more of a person than you you can ever feel with Siri or Alexa or any of those bots. But of course, you know, the bot reveals itself very quickly because it's a, it's a bot and it only has certain codes to, to regurgitate language and she becomes quite dumb pretty quickly, you know? So yeah, you know, again, this kind of blank slate for making new kinds of representation that Martine is fully embracing in this project goes in the way that she's constructing language on artificial intelligence and what that looks like and how that feels for viewers. You know, the questions she's asking are, for the most part, questions I've already asked, always asked myself. And I think for the most part, a lot of us have asked ourselves that we don't really want to answer. And in that way, they're very vulnerable. That's in a really important part of the piece. Another part of the way that Teeny is programmed is that Teeny, and so one thing to back up is that, this gets kind of tricky, but Teeny is the chatbot that you chat with that then changes the sequence of images, text, music on the four televisions in the space. The four televisions in the space are running a film called Mythic Being, My Thick Being, actually not Mythic Being. And so Teeny is running the algorithm that changes the sequences on this, these videos. And that sequence, again, you know, in an opportunity to fill a void, you know, Martine could have easily just made a kind of 
you know, I don't, I'll be making things up because I'm not a coder, right? But so like a 4-2 um, um, sequence of when the images move around the screens, you know, which is a very algorithmic mathematical way of of coding. She instead coded her piece after a dance sequence called Roses Dances Roses by Anne Theresa de Kiersmacher. So she's, um, if you've ever seen Beyonce's Countdown music video, it was borrowed from that choreography. And it's basically, it's a field de Kiersmacher started or is talked about as an algorithmic choreographer. So dancers are dancing themselves in this beat that takes the form of a code. So the sequence of mythic being, my thick being on the monitors are being driven by the code from the chatbot, but the code is a dance sequence. So wherever she has an opportunity to put a human human touch to coding and to technology, she does, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. which is really amazing. And like, you know, only can be done when you know how to code and you know how to do all of these things. So she is coding all of this. With help of developers. But the amazing thing about Martine is her constant reshifting her practice. She takes on through research every aspect of that shift to fully understand it. You know, a lot of artists outsource everything and they, you know, that's part of collaboration. And that's also great, relying on someone else's brain to do things. But Martine is very much really involved in all of those learning process and and thorough and earnest about what it is she knows and the limits of her the coding right so like some code is so sophisticated in chatbots they can be like oh it sounds like your voice is down low today are you sad you know teeny is made with html and she's not that smart you know so it's like um and, but that's based on what Martine can do, you know, and that's really amazing. Yeah. Well, and that just makes me go back to this idea of that you said at the very beginning that this AI and this technology space is so different than the space that she was exploring before with pop culture, really, with mm-hmm. a focus on film, mm-hmm. in that it is so homogenous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just white, it's white men. Yeah, it's corporate. And so, it's... She, yeah, and corporate. And, and so she couldn't, she almost has to, in order to be authentically exploring this question of subjectivity of mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's no way for her to, to have her voice or any black woman's voice, unless she is doing that. Exactly, because it doesn't exist, you know? One thing that I would say is, like, very important to the work is this, she explores this very basic idea and takes it to a hyper-conceptual idea, this idea of modeling and modeling oneself and what that means, you know? She starts from threat modeling, which is essentially anyone who's building anything on technology, so a website or an app, has to make a chart of sorts that visualizes all of the possible threats that can be introduced into a website or an application. So coding threats or user threats. And then you have to develop the tools to combat all those threats so your system works, right? This is a threat modeling. She, in that research, connected threat modeling to psychology and psychoanalysis to say, like, we threat model every day. When we walk into our house, we lock our doors because we think some crazy thing is going to happen because we've seen too many Lifetime movies or whatever, crime documentaries, or we make sure our curtains are closed because we don't want to be seen or all of these things, these neuroses and these like psychological processes that we do just to protect ourselves is core to our thinking, you know, for her. And, you know, I think for me, that process 
for black people in the U.S., and especially black women, is even more extreme, you know, because you're walking down the street or you're driving and you might get pulled over. The constant assessing Mm -hmm. what possibly could go wrong in that given moment is something that's just second nature to the way that that psychology and specifically black women's psychology is, I don't want to say coded, but uh, is... Yeah, I guess developed in the United States, and then so there's there's that very specific connection between threat modeling and the Black feminine experience. But then there's just the idea of modeled behavior, right? We see people, just any person, it doesn't have to be a woman or Black or anything, sees people doing certain things on the internet, like you know, vacation pictures or selfies, and you do it too because you're modeling yourself after what you see. And oftentimes, those things actually are in service to corporations and capitalism. We think about what people thought was an innocent 10-year challenge, right? To say, let's post a picture of myself 10 years ago and today. And, you know, like anyone is interested in seeing the difference of your aging, you know, right? Like, and But this 10-year challenge was put out into the social media sphere very close to the time when Google was developing age recognition software, you know, and we're like, we just think we're playing games and just being vain, but we're actually being used for developers for free. Yeah. So one of Martine's big themes is this idea specifically of body image. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you feel like, I mean, where do you feel like that's coming from for her? I I don't want to postulate on any kind of personal things that might be stemming from this, but I think that I would say, I would start by saying that like, if you're in a public, the public eye, you're experiencing a different kind of mirroring, right? Like you're always seeing yourself in images. You're always seeing yourself in ads. It's like hearing your own voice on, you know, a recording, right? You just have a different understanding of what you thought you looked like. (laughs) And so that's the one piece from someone that has a public image, but then everyone has a public image, right? You don't have to be famous to have images of yourself circulated on the internet and have this gap between how you think you look and how you really look. Also, Martine is really, really interested in the limits of feminism, this idea of gender norms or gender conformativity and what it means to look like a woman, you know, a pretty woman and what those standards of beauty are based on. She reads a lot of queer theory and is really interested in ways that you can break those kind of really rigid performative aspects of gender and therefore femininity and body type. You know, that makes me think about what you were talking about before about the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And this is what it brought us is This idea of (laughs) narcissism, yes, for sure. And also this idea of this idealized Western white ideal of beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we think of the Enlightenment as being sort of a unvarnished, positive development in human social evolution. And maybe it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, I know it absolutely is. I think that one thing that that I connect with Martine and her work a lot, as well as Fred Moten, who's that scholar and poet I I quoted, is that I spent a very long time thinking that efficiency was the model, you know, being efficient, eradicating the mess, having full control of my therefore destiny and future. I remember loving enlightenment when I was in high school because I was like, oh my God, this is so smart. It's self-determination. And like, you can just reconstruct yourself and just not show the parts that are vulnerable. You know, this is great for progress. It took a really long time for me to understand what it is that I was performing. One of the things that Martine talked about in 
titling the piece My Thick Being is that she was reading this text by Jennifer Kearns Alexander that speaks about this kind of um, post-industrialized moment in which man started to create these giant machines in which all of the cogs were visible and, and grand so that we can honor efficiency and see it as an object. Like if the machine is a sculpture, a receipt for efficiency, and she talks about the machine as being thick for a reason, because people need to see how powerful and how productive, productive they are. So there's just a moment where that kind of early industrialist theory comes into this thing that you think is just vernacular. Like the word thick just means a body type, right? So it goes back to your question about body type. Like my thick being is talking about specifically a language vernacular now that's everywhere, but you know, in black culture, that was a description of someone that wasn't just slender and beautiful. So in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you know, that now all of that, like the mechanisms of efficiency are now intentionally invisible mm -hmm. with these very things that Martine is exploring mm -hmm. and trying to expose. The idea is not to make us feel powerful by letting us see these machines, but it's to make us feel like we're powerful by giving us the illusion right. of self-determination mm -hmm. or, and um, really the mechanisms of quote efficiency are invisible yeah. and and hidden and manipulative we need artists like martine sure to do. expose those yeah. things yeah. to us and make them make us think about them and make them visible to mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. absolutely i would agree with that and i have full faith that when the conversation shifts away from technology, whatever the next thing is, I don't know, I can't even make it up at this point, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> maybe we'll go to it be there. feudal farming, like maybe that's her new thing or something. I don't know, um, that she'll respond to, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll look at that. You know, she's an incredibly, again, an, just incredibly talented, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant artist that I think will continue to grow with culture if institutions and individuals can continue to support her work. And so how long do we have to experience this exhibition? So this exhibition closes on May 12th. And on Thursday, I believe, April the 4th, Martine Sims will be back because we've produced a book for the show. So she will be back for a catalog launch and public talk on the 4th at 4 o'clock at the ICA. Great. I've already put it on my calendar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, thanks for sitting down with me for this time and talking about Martine Sims and this incredible piece. It's just so much to think about and really is amazingly mind-blowing. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about Martine's work. <laughs> thanks. That's it for this episode of the Look See podcast. Check out our website, lookthensee.com, for more on the visual arts enrichment. And then go see art. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.